1: Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Posse of the People. In this episode, we have the news with me, Brittany, Clinton, Sam, as usual... Then I sit down with Brittany Young, a Baltimore hero who works in the dirt bike community in Baltimore to get young people excited about STEM. I learned so much from Brittany and she's such a reminder that you take the work where the people are. And that is my message for the week. And you'll hear this in the conversation with Brittany, but there's one model that says the people come to you, that you have a good idea and we have built a whole host of models where to access the resource or the knowledge, like people have to come to you. There's another way to organize that says we go where people already are. And Brittany Young saw a dirt bike community that was its own community. And she went to that space and said, let me help. Can I help? And here's what I think we can do. And that should be all of our work you know you hear people say meet people where they are but it's also like can we build skills and capacity where people already are organizing people are organizing in the basement of the church let them organize there. If they're doing it on stoops let's talk to people in their stoops if the place where more people are getting their information about politics is at the pta meeting we need to be at the pta meetings so how do we make sure that we go where people are as opposed to sort of forcing people to come where we are and this matters because people are naturally already going someplace it's hard to sustain people forcing them to come somewhere else it's just a different thing let's go
2: hey y'all it's the news this is Brittany packnett cunningham at miss packetti on all social media
0: and this is Sam Snyangwe at sam's way on twitter and this is clint smith at clint smith the third
2: i i i and this is dere at d-r-e-y on twitter so it's a celebration you want to know why ask me why say why
3: why are we celebrating Brittany?
1: why bp why bp
2: Okay, okay, okay. Um, it's because the academy saw fit and we would really like to thank them to award us what we would like to believe, is an Oscar of podcasts. Congratulations <laughs> to the Pod Save the People crew. Behind the scenes, in front of the scenes, on our I Heart Radio Award is the best political podcast.
0: Congratulations.
2: I'd like to thank my mama, my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Um, I want to thank the producers, our executive producer, Jess Cordova-Kramer, all of the team members, past and present, everybody who's made this happen, the Crooked Media fam, and of course, my brothers here on this podcast and in real life, Pod Save the Crew, we did it.
3: Who would have thought that all those years ago (laughs) when DeRay called me, (laughs) when I was in the gym and said... What are you doing in 15 minutes?
2: (laughs) At least you were in the gym because I was in bed. (laughs) And he was like, do you want to talk about the news? (laughs) Sure, why not? Let's record at 8 a.m. Why?
1: (laughs) And we did it. And here
2: we are. Most importantly, we want to thank each and every one of you who listens, shares, subscribes, um, posts about it, tweets about it, tells your family members you absolutely have to listen to this. You all are the reason why we are still here and able to record this thing every single week. and so it really couldn't be done without you all, um, the members of our community. We're really grateful for you.
1: And thank you, Lord, for staying with us because the beginning was rough.
2: Those first episodes, whoo, oh. whoo, we we going to come a long way.
3: The audio quality was not at its best. But now we got <laughs> some microphones. I will say, and this is, I think it's true for all of us. Everywhere
1: I go, people tell me how much they learn from the pod. And I tell them that we actually all learn something every week, too. That this is a learning experience for all of us. And that is something I'm eternally grateful for. The other news to celebrate is that Brittany is the newest uh, contributor to MSNBC. Woo! So if you like the speeches that Brittany has on the podcast, you will hear even better versions on live TV. You'll be able to see her face uh, as she gives a speech. Brittany is always ready. Got a good word. She just always has it at her fingertips. Uh, and she is not leaving the pod. So this is in addition to the pod.
2: The shady love. <laughs> Definitely not leaving the pod. People were like, oh, my God, wait, are you still doing the pod? And I was like, oh, this is – I didn't even think to say that to people because I was like, no, of course I'm staying on the pod. This is not even a question. And people were like, wait a minute, but we need to know. And I was like, oh, yeah, I probably should have led with that. <laughs> I'll still talk to y'all every week. Thank you for the that shady congratulations, Duray,
3: <laughs> about my speeches.
1: <laughs> the speeches be No, I, it's not even shady. People come up to me, they're like, I love Britney's speeches. I'm like <laughs> – it's a speech.
3: They'll cut you off on TV, though. They don't play. They'll you got like thirty seconds oh, on TV. They and get in your ear and
2: they're like, "It's time to rap, it's time it's to rap, wrap it
1: up." And people don't realize that the news is so quick. You know, it's just like quick hits. It's like longest thing is like two minutes, and you're like, "Woo, two minutes feels like a
3: lifetime." And that's one of the things I love most about podcasting is that it gives you more space. I got so many texts from like multiple aunties that were like, "Your friend Brittany's on TV." Just like the auntie text came rolling in. (laughs)
2: Thanks, aunties. Well, thanks, y'all. I'm really excited to be part of the NBC News and MSNBC family. Go there for the important headlines and information. Come here for these in-depth conversations that you know we're going to have. And with that, I think it's time for the news.
0: All right. So my news is about a company called Clearview AI. Now, this is a company that you may not have heard of. I just found out about it this week because it was the subject of a New York Times article about facial recognition. So apparently Clearview AI has mined photos from a variety of different websites like Facebook, YouTube, Venmo, and apparently millions of other websites to create the single largest database of images of people. They have 3 billion photos of people in their database, which by the way is more than the FBI. It is more than local police departments have. It is a huge number of photos, three billion photos of people. And now what they are doing with that is actually quite shocking. So we've talked a lot about facial recognition, the ways in which uh, it's beginning to proliferate, uh, the dangers that it poses to people's privacy. This is an expansion of that risk because what it means is now, now we're learning that Clearview has partnered with over 600 law enforcement agencies across the country to give them access to their data. And that means that law enforcement agencies can take a picture of you, scan it and cross-reference it with Clearview's database, and then find out all kinds of information about you, information about a potential criminal record, information about what you might have done in the past, things that you may have posted online, past pictures of you, uh, all aggregated together in a way that makes it even easier for law enforcement to surveil people. Not only that, but Clearview has also developed a technology that allows, uh, for example, a police officer to wear augmented reality glasses. And just like in a movie, a dystopian movie like Terminator, the officer could use those glasses to in real time scan the people that are coming across their field of vision and immediately identify those people, uh, link them to a range of information about those people and use that to uh, police people. So this is a huge sort of expansion of the danger of facial recognition. We're just finding out about it now. It's been a company that has sort of been under the radar. It's also a company that is linked to a lot of other nefarious actors that have been in this space, people like Peter Thiel, even Rudy Giuliani, one of the uh, co-founders of the company previously worked for Rudy Giuliani. This is a technology to definitely look out for to begin to think differently about how do we protect our privacy in a world where uh, pretty much every image that's ever been made of us is suddenly not only online, um, but in an easily searchable uh, and findable interface that 600 law enforcement agencies are currently using.
2: You know, Sam... I'm going to tell you that 70% of the news that you send us always scares the mess out of me. Necessarily so. Like, we clearly need to know about this. Um, We clearly need to be able to be vigilant about this and push back. And this is what we talk about all the time, right? How much stuff is happening, not just behind the scenes, but how much stuff is happening in fairly plain view. And we're just not paying attention to it because there is so much to pay attention to. There are so many things to be outraged about right now. And the fact that 600 law enforcement agencies could start using this particular company, uh, Clearview, in the last year alone, and nobody noticed until now, is another sign that there is just a lot coming at us, even coming at the people whose job it is to investigate this kind of stuff. So I'm glad that this came out. But it is scary to think what else could be happening behind the scenes. uh, And we need to continue to dig further. I just got I got a very strange piece of what normally is hate mail. I mean, all of us unfortunately get really toxic and terrible and racist and sexist and homophobic DMs and emails. Sometimes we've gotten snail mail, which as you can imagine is very scary because it means somebody knows where you live or where they think you live. Um, But I also got a text message And it was spoofed to look like it was coming from me, even though it very clearly, uh, obviously, I would not send something like that to myself. But also, when you send yourself a text, y'all know the text shows up twice, one outgoing and one incoming, and it didn't do this. So it was clear that somebody had spoofed my number. So I'm trying to figure out who's got my number. And then I happen upon all of these like data farm websites, where essentially people will just... Collect your information from all parts of the web that you may or may not know about and sell it to whomever can pay the bill. And so finding that out and reading your news all within 24 hours is a reminder that we just have to keep paying attention. Yes, this stuff is scary, but we can't let it scare us into ignoring reality.
3: Yeah, I mean, this is one of those things, as you said, Brittany, that can go under the radar. But we've already seen in a sort of global context, the implications of government agencies using uh, this facial recognition technology. And I mean, part of the reason that the protesters in Hong Kong were so upset, and went to such extraordinary measures to hide their faces and protect their faces was because in China and in Hong Kong, there's facial recognition technology all over the place in a sort of big brother dystopian way that we fear it already exists. In that part of the world. And, and, you know, I remember seeing the photos of the protesters in Hong Kong. They were like covering uh, certain facial recognition towers with umbrellas. They were you couldn't see anything except their eyes. And sometimes they even wore like special glasses to keep them from doing facial recognition on your eyes. The lengths to which people have to go in order to protect themselves or their families, right, from being harassed because the implications exist far beyond you, right? Even if you are willing to take a risk as an activist or or what have you, if these agencies have a way of identifying you, they also have a way likely of identifying your family. And so it creates a scenario in which you're not only putting yourself at risk, but you're putting your loved ones at risk of, of harassment from the state as well. I should also say, and we've talked about this before, that this technology is very imprecise with regard to who and how it identifies different folks. And that has a long track record. Different iterations of this have long track records of incorrectly identifying black people and different people of color. And saying that not being able to tell the difference between certain people's faces or creating matches that aren't actually matches because they're different people. And so that could create a scenario in which you have somebody, if a police agency is using this technology, they could end up apprehending the wrong person because the technology is not adequate with regard to identifying the faces of darker skinned people. And so, you know, the list goes on and on about why this is really scary. And it was on the front page of the print New York Times. And I'm glad that it is getting some attention, but clearly it's still not being paid attention to by as many people as it needs to.
0: Yeah, I mean, Clint, just building on that, you know, this is obviously not the first time that we've talked about facial recognition. It's not the first time that this has been in the news. And it is sort of a reminder of how ubiquitous uh, some of this technology has become. So, you know, I recently traveled abroad and had a stopover through China. And just there, you had to scan your fingerprints, you had to scan your face. So that puts you on the grid there, coming back into the US from abroad, going through Customs and Border Patrol. When you'd have your passport there, you have to scan your face, right? They take a picture of you that goes into some database. They already have so much data, the government in particular. What this company is doing now is they're able to create linkages that weren't there before, and, and amass an even larger database than even what the government has, and then provide that to the government so that they have even more information on you, even more connections they can make so you know the FBI's database for example had 411 million photographs of people whereas this Clearview database has 3 billion photographs so it's just a different scale and that exposes you to even more risk from law enforcement
1: so what I want to talk about the three things uh, first is that this originated through muckrock so muckrock is a platform That allows citizens to file FOIA requests and not have to go through somebody else. And it's an incredible platform. We, when we started the Campaign Zero projects, the Police Union Contract Project and the Use of Force Project, we did it on MuckRock. And they still use the infrastructure from us putting the 100 largest police departments in as the databases. So the project to get Clearview started out from that database, which is dope. And it's good to see that MuckRock is still a platform that people can use. Go check out MuckRock. This is a shout out to them. They're incredible. And what they also have already pre-done is because there are 18,000 police departments in the country and they didn't FOIA all 18,000 police departments, you can actually go and they've sort of pre-filled out a FOIA request so that you can ask for documents about Clearview and your local police department, which is incredible. The second is that it reminds me of surveillance being all over the place. So in Baltimore, you have heard us talk before about the surveillance plane. So there are going to be three surveillance planes that fly over the city of Baltimore the second half of 2020. It's going to cover 90% of the city, and it's going to take continuous footage with the idea that when crimes happen, the police will then be able to rewind the footage and catch the bad guys. Like, the staff raising, obviously not mine. And remember that the spy planes flew previously, but they were secret, like we didn't know until a reporter covered it, and then they got shut down, but they are coming back. Uh, The police commissioner and the mayor are on board with this. Now, here's the thing. They won't have live feeds, so this won't be a deterrent anyway, and they shouldn't have live feeds. The thought that the city is going to be under permanent aerial surveillance is sort of wild. The city won't even own the footage. The footage will be given to the city of Baltimore in what they're calling, quote, evidence packets, So this private vendor will have access to all this footage about where people walk, go, drive, incredible wild data set that's an invasion of privacy. They will own it completely, which is how the city is going to bypass any FOIA requests or any requests about maintaining it. And the other thing is that the city has also said that none of this footage will be used for police misconduct cases. So when the police steal, remember in Baltimore, we had an entire division of the police department indicted, a whole task force. And when a reporter said, well, okay, so if we have this footage capturing 90% of the city at any given moment, uh, if the police do wrong, will we use this footage in in those cases? And they were like, no. And you're like, that doesn't make any sense. The third thing is, and I didn't know this, is that in um, Lakeland, Florida, Amazon actually had joined into a relationship with Ring to encourage and promote Ring cameras in the community, and for every one Ring camera that was purchased there'd be a benefit to the police department and all of this was because ring has entered into an agreement with police agencies where they can get the footage but they need people to install the cameras and they were like financially incentivizing the lakeland police department to actually encourage people and give people cameras to increase the reach which is again wild don't go anywhere more pot the people's coming
4: Fuel up for them with factors no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian-approved and ready to eat in just two Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, they sent me the factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like, I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com pstp50 And use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at Factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active.
0: This is BVK for Ocean City Tourism, OCMD Streaming Audio. On March 11th, 2024, The title of the spot is STSA Leisure Summer. This is a 30-second composite stereo streaming audio mix.
1: Get away with friends to the laid-back Maryland coast, where you can catch up while casting off and hang 10 while hanging out, where a day on board is never boring and full throttle is half the fun, where you can sink a putt, raise a glass, and there's always room for one more round. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at oceocean.com. Vacations are always good. Sometimes they're even great. And Celebrity Cruises is about to ruin all of that.
0: Because once you explore with us, you'll never want a vacation any other way. And with new quick Caribbean escapes, you'll never want a weekend any other way either. Celebrity Cruises. Nothing comes close. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Ships Registry, Multa and Ecuador.
1: Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and when we keep them bottled up. It can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com/people.
3: So this podcast is coming out uh, the day after Martin Luther King Day. We've talked about on many occasions through this podcast, particularly two years ago when we had the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's assassination, how his image uh, has been skewed and rendered something that is politically convenient for a lot of groups who otherwise would have opposed so much of what he stood for today. And so I thought, given the the holiday, given the timing, it's important for us to sort of revisit some of that because there continue to be a lot of people who simply don't know, right, who think that Dr. King is simply one line in one paragraph of one speech on one day and that that line is sort of decontextualized and stripped of any of its teeth in order to make him seem like a sort of teddy bear. But uh, he was perceived as anything but that over the course of his life. So, for example, in 1968, the Harris poll showed that he had a disapproval rating of nearly 75 percent. And other polls are, are show a similar sort of rate of disapproval throughout the country. And his faltering appeal over the final years of his life was pretty much a consequence of him appearing to fall behind the times in some respects, even though he was leaping ahead of them in many others. So, for example, young black activists thought that King wasn't militant enough, and they didn't necessarily want to abide by the doctrine of nonviolence, specifically in the context of self-defense. So folks like Stokely Carmichael, the Black Panthers, they were not with that. Uh, while white liberals thought that he was going way too far in speaking out against uh, the Vietnam War, and then also making his activism tied to class oppression and not just racial oppression. Uh, so an example of this is just a day after returning home in 1964, after he received the Nobel Peace Prize, he flew to the U.S. to join a picket line at an Atlanta factory where 700 workers were striking for better wages for less skilled employees. Many poor whites, Dr. King would say, were, quote, in the very same boat with the Negro, and that if they could just be persuaded to join forces with black folks, they could form what he called the Grand Alliance and, quote, exert massive pressure on the government to get jobs for all. When King spoke out against Vietnam, he received a huge amount of pushback from from white folks and from black folks, and the consequences of this were severe, right? President Johnson, who he had worked with to pass the 1964 uh, Civil Rights Act and 1965 Voting Rights Act, Cut off all contact with King. Black American civil rights leaders and many of his old allies said that him speaking out against Vietnam was something that he shouldn't do because it would undermine the work that he was doing here in the U.S. But King was, he was clear, right? He was, he was clear ethically. He was clear morally. He's like, I cannot speak about oppression here in the United States without also speaking about the oppression that I very clearly see happening abroad, especially when it involves huge amounts of poor black boys and men being sent over and killed in a war that is in and of itself perpetuating a sort of oppression that, that we shouldn't be involved in. Just a couple other points about King. He believed in universal job guarantee. He believed in universal basic income. He called the United States in a 1968 speech at Riverside Church, the greatest purveyor of violence in the history of the world, um, and talked at length about U.S. imperialism and the, the responsibility that wealthier countries across the West have to redistribute their wealth to countries throughout the global South that they had colonized for years and years and decades and, and centuries. There's so many things to say about King's legacy that reflect a much more radical vision than the one that we are often given, right? King said that no one should be forced to live in poverty while others live in luxury. And, you know, he's speaking in a way that would be condemned by so many of the people who are celebrating him and lifting up his name today, or in this case, in this podcast yesterday. And it's just something that's always important to keep in mind. Two years ago, The Atlantic had a really amazing issue just dedicated to Dr. King. Tommy Shelby has an incredible book with Brandon Terry about Dr. King that I would recommend checking out and sort of hit The Radical Legacy of King. And there's there's so many so many books. Cornell West has one. So I would encourage folks to take a look at that, take a look at some of the speeches, uh, because the King that we've been taught about our entire lives is not reflective of the totality of what Dr. King had to offer to us. And I'm grateful for so many of his his kids, um, like Bernice King, who continue to ensure that their father's cause and their father's work and their father's name is not used or manipulated or taken out of context.
2: And I'd also add to that reading list, Dr. King's final book, Where Do We Go From Here, Community or Chaos, um, as a reflection of not only the radical King, but uh, a great deal of wisdom that we Really need right now, and the the King Center, Dr. Bernice King, so many others are not only keeping the legacy alive, but continuing to teach us what is true about Dr. King, his practice of nonviolence, his practice of civil disobedience, his practice of social change, uh, and all in the hopes of building the beloved community. But Clint, your news actually relates closely to mine because I was thinking about a march that, by the time this comes out, will have already happened, because we know that there's supposed to be a pro-gun rally. And at the time of this recording, I don't know how big it's actually going to be, What I do know is that the Virginia Capital Defense League uh, requested 10,000 people to come out to stand outside of the square armed um, and to show themselves as a strong force against what they believe to be overdone gun control reforms attempted by the uh, Virginia state legislature. And they are doing this on Dr. King's birthday. Now, people have previously pointed to the fact that in Virginia, it is traditional for lots of groups to go and lobby on Dr. King's birthday because kids are out of school, people are off of work, etc. But let's be clear that you can lobby your elected officials at any given time. And there was very clear intention about asking 10,000 gun owners to come out and march on Dr. King Day. Look, we have to be very clear. In America, guns are absolutely a symbol of white supremacy. If we go all the way back to colonial America, it was landowners who could actually carry guns. They are the ones who then gave that right to poor white people so that they could try to push back the uprisings that they predicted would come from indigenous folks and black people. So this has always been a very clear symbol of white supremacy in this country. And this march is nothing more than a display of white male privilege and power, power that is often expressed against oppressed people With violence. Of course, when those folks come out with guns in the open and are carrying openly, they are seen as patriots. When people of color do that, black people in particular, we are seen as threats. We know that one of the only times that the idea of gun control started to popularize among white communities was during the Black Power and Black Arts Movement when people like the folks that you named, Clint, um, folks from the Nation of Islam, people like the Black Panthers, decided that they too were going to own guns and carry openly. That's the only time that we actually saw white America start to take the idea of gun control seriously. What's even more wild about this is that the majority of Americans who actually die from gun deaths are white men because most of them are dying from self-inflicted gunshot wounds There are about 25,000 gun suicides in America every single year. This doesn't actually help the group that is most often showing up for pro-gun rallies. But what I'm very clear about is that this is a display of power and that this is an attempt to intimidate people, not just on Dr. King's birthday, but on Dr. King Day during an election year. We know that Klan marchers and so much more were leveraged during these times specifically to try to intimidate people away from the ballot box, and this year is sadly no different. We know that what Du Bois called the upright Negro always scares people, and sadly, we're continuing to see it come true even on King Day.
0: So, Brittany, as you as you noted, uh, you know gun ownership historically and currently uh, is something that is concentrated among white men, particularly white male landowners. So today, seventy four percent of gun owners in the U.S. are male. Eighty 2% of gun owners are white. What was also interesting in preparation for this news was looking back into the history of gun ownership and just realizing the extent to which gun ownership has been widespread, particularly among the white male population, not only like a century ago or two centuries ago, but all the way back into colonial America. So today, about a third of all U.S. households are gun-owning households. Back during colonial America, estimates are that anywhere from half to three-quarters of households own firearms. So this is half to three-quarters of white households in particular. Um, We know that the law was structured in ways that prohibited Black people from owning guns, prohibited folks who were enslaved from owning guns, prohibited Native American communities from having guns, in some cases prohibited indentured servants who, in some cases, were poor whites from having guns. But among... white men in general and white male landowners in particular, guns have been fairly ubiquitous. Even so that, you know, I didn't know this, until today, but there were a set of laws in a number of the colonies that mandated gun ownership among white men. So for example, in Georgia, uh, in colonial Georgia, there was a law that required uh, every male white person to carry a rifle or pistol every time they attended church, which is interesting. In Massachusetts, um, there was a law requiring white men to own a gun and actually imposed a fine on those who were not armed. In Virginia, which is where this march is scheduled to take place, There was a law in the 1600s that required white men to own guns, uh, required them to participate in training and target practice and to join a militia. So this is something that goes all the way back to colonial America. It goes back to the utility for white men in using those guns to, number one, colonize the United States and take lands that were owned by Native Americans, and also to suppress insurrections and rebellions from enslaved populations. And so that's sort of where this culture comes from. And it's actually, you know, when you look at the historical record, it was even more ubiquitous uh, in the past than it is today, but it still remains ubiquitous enough uh, among white men and people with power that we're not seeing enough change happen.
1: You know, one of the things that I'm reminded of, and Brittany and Sam, thanks so much for reminding and teaching me, reminding me some of it and teaching me some of it about the demographics of gun ownership and the history around those demographics. This is why when we talk so much about incarceration, while we always remind people that incarceration has never been about crime, it's always been about control. So when people say things like, you know, there can never be gazillion black people coming to the Capitol in Virginia armed... A reminder of that is not only like, of course, we'd be heavily policed and of course there's anti-blackness and da-da, but even like from a functional standpoint, black people wouldn't be able to legally access guns in the way that white people can, given the way that we've disenfranchised so many black people across the country. So when we think about the impact of incarceration, it actually functions in a host of ways that have nothing to do with crime. But what it does is create a permanent underclass or a permanent class of people that even might fall outside of a socioeconomic structure, but they fall within another structure, like a sociopolitical structure, that means that they will always have less power. So they might make as much money but won't be able to vote in Florida. They might be able to send their kid to the school that everybody else goes to, but they won't be able to live in public housing Because we made these wild public housing laws that say that if you smoke, you can't live in a building anymore, which isn't the case in any other building, right? So this is the way that like these rules sort of set people up. And we think about last week where we talked about the restitution center. It's like, what does it mean to be free but not free? So not incarcerated. So people are like, oh, this is great. But like "Mm," structurally, in the way that your life is being impacted Uh, still a big problem. But I think about how often these stories like the one Brittany is talking about sort of leads people to this conversation about like black people can never do that. And I think that like when we double click on that and dig a little deeper, one of the reasons why black people aren't able to function in similar ways, even in grievances, is because we have been structurally denied and disenfranchised those opportunities. Uh, My news is about legacy admissions. So we talked about legacy admissions a long time ago around the Harvard case. But the reason I'm talking about it today is that Johns Hopkins, the president of Johns Hopkins, which is a university in Baltimore, just announced that Hopkins had done away with legacy admissions. But the reality is that Hopkins had done away with legacy admissions in 2014, just hadn't made a big deal about it publicly until this week, where he explained why. And and he offered a host of rationales. He talked about how in 1997, there was a study that said that a legacy preference was equivalent to a boost of 160 points in the SAT. There a different study that said that legacy students were three times as likely to be admitted as non-legacy students. And then a reminder that legacy students are more likely to be wealthy and white. What I didn't know is that there were some universities like MIT, Caltech, uh, that never ever had uh, legacy admissions. I also found out that Vanderbilt is a school that did away with legacy admissions from 2005 to 2007, and then restarted those bad boys back up in uh, 2007, 2008. And 42% of private universities have legacy admissions, and about 6% of public universities have legacy admissions. And then the last thing I'll say before I sort of explain why this is important is that there was a more recent study that found that 43% of white students, this is when we were talking about Harvard, the study found that 43% of white students were legacy athletes or related to donors and staff, which is wild. And less than 16% were black, Latino, and Asian in those same four buckets. So when we think about this, it's like there's always this illusion that like meritocracy, free market, if people just work hard, they get in. It's like there are actually all these systems and structures that preference rich people and white people in ways that seem invisible, and ways that sort of just look like hard work. But when you think about a Harvard class where 43% of white students are either legacy athletes or related to somebody— That is actually pretty exceptional. So the more and more that we take these preferences away that benefit people who already get societal preference, the more and more we level the playing field in a way that brings true equity.
2: So when I was a fellow at Harvard's Institute of Politics back in 2018, my study group was all about intersectional activism and social change. uh, But I called it all power to all the people, which is, of course, what the Black Panther said But I really believe that this is a time where we have to intentionally, structurally, and with great clarity and courage of spirit, redefine what power actually is. For so long, power looked like being able to secure a certain lifestyle for your children, whether or not they have earned it based on what you did in your life. So if you went to Harvard, good chances were your kids could go to Harvard. If you went to Johns Hopkins, good chances where your kids could go to Johns Hopkins. And that for so long is how people have defined power, the ability to take what they want and hoard it for themselves and not share it with anybody else. And so deconstructing some of the traditions that we have become used to is so critical to actually redefining what power is because knowledge is power, right? And if knowledge is accessible in institutions of higher education, then sharing power means sharing knowledge for all people. It means ensuring that there are not obstacles because where there are unearned benefits to certain people, those same unearned benefits to legacy students stand as obstacles to all of the other students who are not legacy This stat about it being 160 additional SAT points doesn't even account for the fact that so many students who are legacies come from families that can afford Kaplan and other test prep services, private tutors. They're already going to high-end schools where things like the practice SAT are being taken early on so that you can get used to that kind of test-taking space. So you've already got those advantages and then you've got an additional 160-point SAT advantage, essentially, because your parent went to the same school that you want to go to. So it is high time for us to redefine power. It is high time for us to redefine it so that we understand fully what sharing it means. It means actually ensuring that the knowledge that these institutions have is accessible by all.
3: One of the things he pointed out in his piece, the president of John Hopkins, is that the economist Raj Chetty, who's one of the most renowned economists around social inequality doing work today... Chetty and his colleagues found that a child without a college degree from a family in the lowest income quintile has only a 5% chance of moving up to the highest quintile. But if that child graduates from one of America's most selective universities, the odds of making that leap rise to 60%. And that's a pretty extraordinary statistic and clearly is something that is animating the sort of decision process for this president and this university in terms of their commitment to ensuring that universities are not a place that are simply reifying Educational and social inequity, right? Which is what a lot of universities do. What college often does, especially these most selective universities, is that they keep this sort of top 20, top 10% of folks in the top 20 or top 10%. But instead thinking about the ways in which these universities can serve as sort of transformative spaces for people coming from low income backgrounds to put them in higher income and wealth quartiles and quintiles as they move forward in their lives. And, you know, something that I'm also thinking about, and I don't know the answer to this, but I'm kind of just thinking out loud here. Mike Bloomberg donated over a billion dollars to John Hopkins maybe a year ago or half a year ago. And I know that from universities, the pressures around legacy admissions are that folks fear that if you don't let the children of your alumni in, that they will be less willing to give money over the course of the rest of their lives, right? And I know that that is a real thing that admissions committees have to think about and reckon with. And I wonder to what extent the Bloomberg donation sort of freed Hopkins from from doing this. Dre, you said they've been doing it since 2014, so maybe this had nothing to do with it. But I do wonder what makes it so that a university can feel free, free enough to be able to make a, a decision that doesn't make them fearful that their alumni base will economically revolt, Right. A really interesting thing, I mean, certainly heartened by it because we need more universities to, as I said, kind of open themselves up to letting more folks from a wider range of economic demographics in. But I'm curious how we can think about what scaling these types of decisions from universities looks like.
0: So, you know, I remember when we first talked about legacy admissions on the pod, I think we were talking about Harvard. And in particular, we were talking about the fact that, you know, according to the data that they publish and is published by the Harvard Crimson, which I believe is a student newspaper there, we actually had the data to understand the proportion of students who were legacies, to understand the demographics of those students. And I remember after reviewing that data, realizing that Harvard admitted more uh, white legacy students than the total black student population combined, you started looking into other schools as well. So UPenn, looking into Dartmouth, looking into Stanford, looking into Cornell, some of the sort of Ivy League schools, some of the more selective schools where legacy has sort of institutionally been around for so long as, as a tool of exclusion. And I was actually shocked by how little data around this is made available, is made public by those institutions. Harvard is probably more transparent than other institutions, but it's it's very hard to find data on the proportion of students who are legacy students in a given school, even harder to find data with that information broken down by race. And Harvard was the only school uh, that I was able to find that had that information broken down demographically. This was for 2015 data at the time. And that data, when they did break it down, it showed that 93% of legacy students were white, 93%. So I think, you know, bare minimum, basic first step for these institutions should be making all of that information transparent. Um, so we can do the types of analyses that, Duray that you mentioned, that found that over 40% of the white student body at, at Harvard benefited in some way from these types of policies. So we could replicate that across the board for so many institutions that are currently keeping this information secret.
1: That's the news. And now my conversation is Brittany Young, a Baltimore hero who works in the bike community in Baltimore and uses her passion around STEM to teach within the community. I learned so much in this conversation, and I just saw Brittany the other day. Here we go. Brittany, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People.
5: Thank you for having me.
1: This has been long overdue. We've been trying to get this together. I know you thought I was joking when I was like, we're going to get you on the pod. You're like, yeah, right? See, and here we are.
5: (laughs) Um, not. Joking, I just knew that your schedule was busy, so I was like, "Okay, when?" You know, that was more of the thing.
1: We here, yes. Now let's jump right into it. I first came across you because we both spoke at an event in the city, and I was intrigued because you know anybody from Baltimore obviously knows the dirt bike riders knows that the city antagonizes the dirt bike riders but I'd never seen someone organizing around dirt bike riding and certainly not around STEM education. And I was just fascinated. And I wanted to ask you no questions uh, because I just wanted to wait for the pod. So can you talk about what drew you to organizing in this way? What is the work you do and what's like the outcome you want to have?
5: Um I mean so I guess the first is like you said just being from baltimore right being really conscious of our culture our brilliance our talent our ingenuity and realizing a lot of times that people from the outside looking in can't understand us and then label us in certain ways and so from a young age I've always just been against the labels that people put on us I hate sometimes going to cities and like hearing all negative stuff about baltimore or people being surprised from the city um so around like dirt bike riding for us, you know, the sound of summer in Baltimore is dirt bikes. If I'm thinking about what's cool, you know, my experience as a black person in the city, how we can keep showing people just how talented and genius they are. I'm going to start with what people are already doing, especially when we look at the lens of like STEM. So my background is in engineering. And less than 5% of us are black in the space, um, less than 2% black women. And I remember when I went into the industry, people kept thinking I was the secretary, the assistant, and never thought that I was actually the person in control of things. Um, so if Dirt Bike grind is the same, you know, the same thing. I think in 2016 I saw two reports. One talking about STEM education can move communities like mine out of poverty, which is true. But I didn't see any action or game plan of how that's actually going to work with people. And then another one talking about how we need to increase the use of police force and tactics in our communities. And I didn't necessarily agree with that. I think we rely too heavily on government to solve problems instead of going to the people to provide a solution. And so out of that is what Birth B360. So in 2016, it was an idea. 2017, we started with 30 students. Um, What I remember the most from my own childhood was seeing dirt bike riders teaching kids how to build their bikes, repair them, um, giving them a space to ride, giving them, like, helmets and that kind of stuff to use. And so that's really what we built upon, my own industry standards and then what people in the communities were already doing. Um, And I think the second part of the question was how do these things intersect? I think for far too long we've always operated out of fear for stuff we don't understand. For me, of course— I was angry when I first started reading some things. Um, I have a brother who went to jail and as an adult at 16, so I've also been really against any solution that results in people going to jail for non-violent offenses. But two, I saw a lot of beauty in what Rise were doing, but more importantly, like a, a better gateway and a better access point. Instead of us being so afraid of dirt bike riding or being so afraid of something that people don't understand, I was like, how can we embrace this and shift it? And that's a part of like the end game. So having spaces in each city, having communities and cities uplift their riders, teaching riders how to get out of traffic, teaching police and law enforcement how to work better with communities and vice versa. And really, we're that middle group. We have the best interests of Baltimore in our, you know, in our hearts. We have the best interests of our students in our hearts. We can empathize with the riders. We can empathize with the government and the legal system. But it's really how do you create a long-term strategy that can work for all people? And that's kind of what B360 came in.
1: How does the the city respond to you, you know, because dirt bike riding is illegal. And, you know, and I ask because city leaders recognize you as somebody doing good work in the city and you're working with the population whose activities they have criminalized.
5: Um, I would say it's interesting dynamic. And even when people talk about illegal, most people don't know in Baltimore is a misdemeanor for owning a dirt bike, a misdemeanor for riding on public and private property. And so I think when people always go straight from zero to 100, which is "Let's get a dirt bike park," they don't talk about like the systems and laws that also need to change to reflect a space like a permanent one, and to how instead of just making it all the way legal, what's a better compromise. So I would say we have support, of course, from our community, which ranges from people that work in government and office to people on the ground doing work. So it's been, I think, again, the empathy part has been allowed us to make a lot of traction because we aren't saying, hey, all dirt bike riders just be in the street popping willies, right? And I'm also saying, too, there's nothing wrong for dirt bike or popping a wheelie. It's just a matter of where you do it, how we do it, and how do we make this more safe. And, again, working with students and young people before us, people didn't really think that kids ride dirt bikes, right so most riders they don't start as twenty five year old men they start as four or five six seven year old little boys and girls who want to grow up to be these superstars and these heroes and so it was just that fact of how do you keep changing the perception and the narrative around who dirt bike riders actually are and Then, if we look at the comparisons between motocross and street riding, it's the same bike. The same talent. The only thing that's different is the opportunity. And I think we've always operated from a deficit of this is a problem, this is an issue, which, you know, it can be problematic in some spaces. But we can also grow into it and just really shift it. And that shift looks like let's actually teach people how to build their bike, design them, code them, 3D print them. And focus on education. Let's hire the dirt bike riders to work with our young people. So taking the people perceived as a nuisance and a problem. Let's work with law enforcement and the government around. You are stressed as well, right? Because that's a big job to uphold. So how can you get more community members on both sides that can just grow it? So I would say we have, it's still illegal, yes. But um, we operate within the law right now. As long as I can keep growing in my own city or with other cities, I feel I'm an optimist. That the end game, again, will look really good, that we can shift the culture, which will help shift the legal problems, which will help shift our communities and create a whole nother league and, you know, a new equitable opportunity for more people look like me.
1: You mentioned some of the things that you do around STEM with the Dirt Bike Riders. Can you talk about the ages you serve? And then what is the, What's the what? What are the activities around STEM or the program around STEM that you offer?
5: So we kind of serve all ages. Um, So like my youngest student, she's four. Uh, She's been riding a dirt bike since she was two. The oldest person we've worked with so far, he is 27. So if you're under 16, we want you in programming. So this means that they learn how to build, code, design, and 3D print a model-sized dirt bike. So one that fits in the palm of your hand. That can run on C plus plus and Java. It's like actually Papa Willy. It's like a model size bike that teaches you prototype and fabrication, and we know that three D printing and all of that is in like the next big boom for the industry. So it's giving those transferable skills directly. And then with the students still under 16, they work with riders and people that no longer ride in streets and traffic, um, who are usually ex-offenders or dirt bike riders, to still learn how to build, design a full-size bike, and then they sell it for a profit. So at 12, you can make money from being in our programming. And then if you're over 16, we want you to make money directly, so we hire you. So again, as long as you are committed to not riding in traffic, um, you want to make money working with children and, and youth. And really, my motto is if you can work with kids, you can do anything. So then we try to put the people that are over 16 into the workforce pipeline directly. So either are working with us or working in a company. So one of our riders work with Red Bull. We have some that go to community college right now for mechanical engineering. And so far, we've served over 5,000 students and we've hired 23 dirt bike riders.
1: Boom. How did you start recruiting dirt bike riders? Did you grow up as a rider or did you literally, like, find a group of riders one day and you're like, hey, I want to offer a program. What do you think?
5: Um, A mix of all of that, right? So, no, I am not the rider. That is a, a skill set that I won't tap into because I don't like the fall. So, I mean, being young, so I'm from the 21215. I'm from, like, the Park Heights area. So, like, when I was five, six, seven, elementary school, middle school – I used to go to the park to watch the riders go through Druid Hill. You know, I was like the Sunday ritual in Baltimore. You would just watch them as like the sport. So I always appreciate it. And then, you know, when you grow up, you realize like, okay, maybe this shouldn't be in traffic. So why are you going to change it? But for me to recruit the riders and to talk to people was kind of a little bit easy because I'm already from the city. I already had people, you know, like backing me and I knew people I knew people. So when I first started, this was 2017 when we launched. So 2016 was when I did all, of like, the boots on the groundwork. work. Um, I was teaching in the school, so I already talked to my kids, and they wanted to be a part of the program, and I was like, check one. The second step was having a meeting with some of the older riders, that was a little bit more difficult because I think, too, people have always made them promises. I came in with no promises. I came in with, you know, here is the organization that I'm trying to start. This is what I'm getting from my students. I want to hear from y'all about some of the challenges, the issues, but also learn, would this be something that you want to be a part of? You know, and of course they were skeptical, but because I knew people, I knew people that I could talk to them, too, they still came. And that was really honorable, so I appreciate that. And then they agreed that parts of the program were what they were already doing, and so I was like, okay, that makes sense. And then it was like, you know, this other missing part, which is the engineering design process that we teach, was something they didn't know about. But when I explained how popping a wheelie is a physics equation, how that torque and that tune game is actually like torque to get your bike and your momentum up, they could understand that too. So that's kind of how we got the buy-in from riders. And then my big ask for them was, if you're going to be a part of this, you know, if we're going to pay you, that means you can't be in traffic also adding to the same problem on the opposite end. And so that's a very strict statement. That's our bottom line with our riders we work with. And so it's been successful in that way. And then our third step (laughs) was to connect with local legislation and government and police. So I met with my councilman. Um, in District Seven, I met the police commissioner who put us in contact with, and this was Commissioner like Davis at the time, who put us in contact with each sergeant of each district. So I remember having a meeting with them all because that was the dirt level. You know, before we started this program, my big ex, because I knew what people were already hearing about dirt bikes. You know, I knew how controversial it could be. So my ex was more around how do we get buy-in too from the police side and. He loved the program. Councilman Pinkett loved the program. Talking to all of the sergeants, you know, they loved the program, too. And then it was go time. And then on February 20th of 2017, we started with a community forum uh, at Druid Hill Development Corporation. And so then it was the community needed to hear about this. So our big thing was how can we get the riders, the students, the police, and community members to sit down and talk about the issues with riding, hear from riders about why they ride. Most people have never heard is their relief distress. Most riders have never heard the complaints from the community. And most riders and vice versa have never heard why the police have to uphold this law. Cause again, people never knew what the law was. Yeah, it went really well. It was a good safe space conversation, but I had to do my due diligence a lot because I knew I'm not a rider, so I'm not, like, coming in telling people what to do. It was, how can I show y'all what y'all are already doing is great. You know, this is what we're doing. This is our bottom line, and how can we get support? But two, I'd equally get as much support from the police and government side because without both sides, it doesn't really work. And then our big buy-in is when people think about Baltimore in 10 years, 20 years, and they think about the students that have come through this program or come through programs like these, do we want to raise kids to grow up to be like engineers and professionals and go into any career they want to, or do we want to raise kids to think that they grow up to become criminals? And so nobody wanted the second answer. And so this first one is what we build on is what's the best for students? What's the best for Baltimore as a whole? And I mean, people compromising and people actually wanting to be a part of something bigger than themselves. And we found out that people do.
1: Boom. What have you learned in the process? I'd love to know. I can only imagine that that you probably went into it thinking it was going to be a certain way that, that so much of that probably came true. Uh, but you also learned a lot in this process. What have you learned in the process, either about the system, about the riders, about engineering?
5: Um, I've learned a lot. I would say, first, in, just in business, right? So I think my strength in this was I knew the work was not going to be easy, right? Nothing so far about my life has been easy. And actually being in business is a little bit easier than what I'm used to, because when I first started B360, I had I was teaching, I was still doing engineering, I was a professor, you know, and I still had to have a personal life at home. But I was really equipped to go into this role because all my life I've been black and I've been from Baltimore. So that was always giving me the most strength and comfort, um but in business you know i really learned when i first came in i assumed i was just going to be like a non-profit right i thought that people were just going to give me grants and donations and it's going like oh yes you know we help students we help grow them we help grow the riders we help grow people so of course people's going to give us money uh <laughs> no that's not how that worked and so on the business side i can definitely say i've grown so much from different experiences and, like, fellowships, incubators that I'm a part of, but really just, like, I'm forever a student because it's always something I don't know. And so on the business side, I have I would say I've learned how to think, like, even longer term about, you know, difference between, like, equity, difference between, like, being just a nonprofit, a C3, a hybrid, a social enterprise, that kind of stuff, and how to get more sustainable with our own model and so we can be more replicable and scale. And then with riders in general, right, I think too, I've learned, like I always saw the tricks in the streets, you know, like the stunts, but I never knew the names of them. I never knew myself, you know, what that Met Met noise that's called. Chopping and tune game. I never knew that, you know, because I've never been a rider. So I would say I equally have learned from my students and the people that we work with in our program just about their own experiences. For one, you know, how they feel about riding dirt bike. I never heard people tell me, oh, it's because it helps us relieve our stress. Oh, it's because it's that euphoria, you know, and hearing from little kids talking about, you know, just how passionate they are and then how much they knew themselves already. And that's what I always say. All of the kids we work with know more than I have ever about dirt bikes and their own version of mechanics than I will in my lifetime. And so I would say I just learned to, like, I knew they were brilliant, but I've learned just how brilliant that has been. And then from, like, a, I guess, like, a STEM world as a whole, I've learned that sometimes we have good intentions and good ideas, and this is, like, you know, not any shade of tea to different organizations, But sometimes what matters is who's in the forefront of it, right? So I think if this idea would have been led by someone that didn't look like me, they maybe would have gotten more money and, you know, more people that poured into it, like financially. But the impact would be different because— People Would not relate to them, so what I've learned, even just like the stem and business landscape, is that my real power and strength is not even how much accolades or money that we can accumulate, but it's those relationships and like how we've built those relationships. I feel like I can go to any city or any state where there's riders and people that ride or that enjoy it, and I know that the riders here, and the riders wherever you know will back us, not saying they're all a part of it, but they back us because. Of what we've shown. In the same way with city government, so recently Cleveland came to visit us in Baltimore because they heard about our program. So I would say what I've learned is just the power has been in the people and the relationships. Yes, we need money, but really it's those relationships that's kept me focused and grounded. And those relationships is what's gonna keep moving us forward. And like for our students and people I get to learn from, it's those relationships that also keep me because I wouldn't be here today if people didn't see something that's bigger in me and bigger than my work because I feel like people are really comfortable with me because I can understand and empathize about where they've come from and
1: where we're going. What's next? Is this to grow, to have, you know, 20,000? I don't know, like what's the, I want to ask what's next. And then I also want to talk about what do we do about the city? Ooh, um,
5: so right now, our big thing is how can we get like more companies and corporations, especially like the motocross motorsports world, to embrace us, right? So like Honda, Kawasaki, all of these big companies to actually want to be a part of what we're doing, not because we just need them but because they need us too, right? The motocross industry is thirty two point three billion dollars, but that doesn't include people that look like me. And so for me, like being on the business side, y'all are missing opportunities to not make money. That's not how I would describe it, but miss opportunities to make more impact. So we're really trying to venture off into like doing events and doing like gaming so people can like see this craft for what it is. If motocross and motorsports is Olympic exercises and games, so can people that ride on asphalt. So us not saying like everyone needs to be on dirt, but actually people appreciating people that ride on asphalt safely. And then we're working on like more products for our STEM education program so we can actually scale and grow faster. So when I travel, people always ask us how they can do this in their own city. And that's why we want to be able to provide a way that you can just go on our website and actually download our curriculum and be able to have it. And then with cities like Cleveland, Cleveland right now is in the middle of trying to make a dirt bike park. So that shows us that it's a big opportunity to grow what we have in Baltimore. So we don't have municipal support in Baltimore, but Cleveland will be a perfect city where we can have municipal support, rider support, student support, and take what we've done in this city to another one. And then my personal goal is just really to keep growing my leadership, right? So I'm constantly firing myself, which means I can hire more people. To so all the people that we already work with, that I can level them up some more. So I would talk about, like, one of our riders, we got him when he was 17. It's been about two years. He is our lead instructor. For him, I see him becoming our manager, then growing to a program manager, you know, and then growing to like a site lead. So I would say that's a part of what's next, too, is giving myself enough capacity to just be able to grow people as I see that they can grow and to give them the tools to keep developing themselves. And for us, the numbers really didn't matter. It was an accident to work with 5,000 kids. Like, I know dirt bikes is big, but it wasn't like I actually planned to say, oh, you know, within 18 months, we'll work with 5,000 students. No, for us... What's next is just more impact. So how can we keep doing what we're doing and then what's the next version, next iteration to make sure it's the same quality and to be able to serve more students? We have a wait list right now of about 1,000 kids. And for me, that hurts. Yes, because we don't have the money to serve 1,000 students, you know. So our programming is completely free. We try to make it accessible by going to the community. So we do a lot of pop-up experiences for this reason. You know, we don't have a space. We don't have classroom space. We don't even really have the money to serve the students that we've been doing. So my big challenge for myself is how can we raise more money to really just keep the ball rolling and keep the momentum and to keep growing this new narrative of kids and people that ride dirt bikes that are smart and talented and genius and kids and people that ride dirt bikes that are more than just the labels we put on them. For Baltimore, (laughs) I think, you know, the city is a city that— We haven't healed yet, and that's unfortunate, right? People always talk about the issues of Baltimore, but never talk about why or how we came to be. So when I read a lot of stuff, it's never about, you know, redlining. It's never about, you know, differences and health disparity between the white owl and the black butterfly. It's always people make it seem like the city was just made yesterday and that all the problems we have going on were just created in like the last two or three years. All the problems we have going on are the result of long history of like racial inequities and disparities. So I would never say we need better leadership. I feel like we haven't approached the leadership in different ways. The same way that I see my students as leaders and the same way I see people in my community as leaders. I think the role of government, too, is to start acknowledging and asking for more help of who can we identify in these communities, in these situations, in these settings, you know, on the ground that are already doing work and how can we get behind and uplift. I would say with... Like Not just talking about me specifically, because there's a lot of people just like me that are tackling really specific targeted issues, but we don't have the buy-in from the government just shit. So I would say if Baltimore wants to move forward, that means changing our own models and our mindsets, that like you don't have to bring in these big companies and corporations to tell you what's wrong with the city and to maybe start doing work to improve it. You need to instead go into the neighborhoods and to find the person that's been doing this work for 20 plus years, 10 plus years, maybe it's two or three years, that already have boots on the ground, no resources, no help, and is doing this because they want to see their city thrive, and then how can we elevate them? So my big ask for Baltimore would be just look with a microscope a little bit deeper. right? Don't look so macro and so, so wide because the people that we need are actually the people that's already there, but we don't really value people from Baltimore just like that yet, and I think that's a part of the problem, that we haven't seen people actually embrace us. I've been doing this work for going on, you know, like two years, some change, and I still have the same struggle. So I can only imagine how it feels to be doing work for 10 plus years and your own city. is not acknowledging it. So I would say we need to give more credit back to actual Baltimoreans and look deeper into that side of how can we, as the government, better support the people? Because, too, the government is stressed. And so lighten your load and help us help you.
1: Boom. Well, we can see you in front of the pod. I can't wait to see you back in the city. I'm sure we'll cross paths again, and I hope that more people learn about and support the work of B360. Me
5: too. <laughs> but no, we. I really appreciate the people that do. I definitely appreciate you for having me, and I really appreciate you know just having this space and people like you definitely help a lot too. So thank you.
1: Boom. Well. That's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week.
0: Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley.